This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Large entrenched encampments like the one uh, that we have on East Hastings is not a viable model going forward. And the, the, the longer the East Hastings encampment continues, the greater odds that more people will lose their lives. Hi, good morning to you. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. That was the voice of Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim speaking about the Hastings Street decampment operation. The mayor speaking a short time ago to our own Simi Sarah. He said the police action on Hastings Street has been successful so far, but we continue to see new tents and structures spring up on the sidewalk. Let's discuss now with the former mayor, of Vancouver. He has a very different take about what's going on. Kennedy Stewart, a now public policy researcher at Simon Fraser University. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Kennedy, thank you for coming on today. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's discuss the situation that we see unfolding on the streets of uh, the downtown east side and Hastings Street. We're into like day seven of this decampment effort now today. Give me your thoughts on it, because I know what we, we just heard from the current mayor is di- very different from your point of view. Yeah, I mean, this uh, approach, this uh, police-led approach is a a clear break with uh, really the last four years uh, when I was uh, at the helm in Vancouver, uh, dealt with four encampments during uh, my time there. And the approach there uh, was uh, always a housing-first approach. So when encampments started to grow, uh, mostly through COVID, uh, where... Uh, physical distancing orders meant that many of the SROs uh, had to cancel their guest policy and uh, forced uh, many, many people onto the streets. Um, so uh, we, I had a, a memorandum of understanding with the province and the park board that um, we would work together to secure funding to uh, either purchase hotels or put uh, temporary modular housing up or um, other kinds of shelter arrangements. And then uh, once we had sufficient number of units, then uh, people would be voluntarily moved uh, to these uh, new units. And so that's the approach, for example, that we used at Strathcona Park. Uh, It's expensive. It costs us about $300 million to do that. But in the end, uh, there was no police action in in Strathcona Park. Uh, People moved voluntarily. And and so that was the approach. This this, approach. Current approach by the city breaks with that uh, that approach. Do you uh, helping? You wrote on Twitter this week, "Welcome to cruel Vancouver," and you described this the police action as genocidal practices. Why do you say that? Why do you say this is cruel? Why do you call this genocidal? Where is the evidence for that? Yeah, well. Um, you know, Parliament, the Parliament of Canada and the Pope have all agreed, uh, recognized officially that, uh, you know, the way Indigenous people have been treated in Canada is, amounts to a genocide. Uh, 40% of the people that are homeless in Vancouver are Indigenous. 
the reason why they're on the streets is because of uh, both trauma that there's many residential school survivors that live on the street or people caught up in the 60 scoop or their uh, descendants who are facing intergenerational trauma and those are the folks that the you know police and city workers are taking their um, you know very flimsy shelter uh, throwing it in the garbage and then pushing them off land to say go fend for yourselves and so you know this is how this is many many what? generations of this practice and we're just continuing it now what do you say about the dangerous situation in the encampment on Hastings Street? And we've heard from the fire chief who issued a fire order almost nine months ago uh, describing the fire risk in the neighborhood. We've heard from the police chief. Let's listen to him right now describe the situation in the neighborhood. The city is saying this is a public safety hazard, and this is why they're taking action. Let's listen to uh, Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer here, then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. Street-level assaults within the encampment have increased 27%, and nearly half of those are now being committed by strangers. More than two times a day, a person is being assaulted in the encampment, and approximately one-third of the assaults are serious assaults or involve a weapon. Kennedy Stewart, how can the city tolerate this situation when this type of violence and crime is going on down there? Yeah, I mean, that. Uh, I guess we have to look at the larger picture is how can we tolerate this um, situation at all from the perspective of the people that are most vulnerable in our city. So what, what's happened over the last seven days is, uh, and we are seeing it in all neighborhoods now, you have folks <clears throat> that have no shelter, that have, all their possessions have been taken, they're sleeping rough outside in some of the worst weather we've had this spring, uh, and there were no um, precautions taken to what would be an obvious outcome of this exercise. And so what we know what will happen uh, is that folks will be moved away from their medical services, right? I mean, they, I don't know, it's about a 1,000 people a day use Insight. Uh, where are those folks going to go now? Um, and they won't have shelter. And we know that homelessness reduces people's lives. So, you know, to me, this is uh, an artificial kind of naive approach to to take when you're dealing with such a level of well, tragedy and it's just making it worse. Well, what is artificial or naive about taking action on a, a dangerous situation? Like one of the one of the, the the stats that we have heard here in the past week and this is shocking to me was the Atira Women's Resource Society did a, a poll, a survey of the women living in the Hastings Street encampment, and they reported that 100%, every single woman they heard from in that encampment, had experienced violence, including sexual violence in the yeah, neighborhood. Well, I don't agree that, I don't disagree that decampment, you know, decampment is a, be, is a good option, but there has to be places for people to go, and this, uh, this mayor and council disappointingly have broken with, uh, what we had arranged with the province, they've essentially torn up the memorandum of understanding that I had signed with David E.B. that we would have housing in place before people were moved because you just make the situation worse if you throw people to the wind and remove their services. And that's what's happened here. So you, I guess you think... the question would be, like, how do you define success with this operation? Okay, well, so you, you think, well, what is the option, though? I mean, are you so you're saying that they should have left the tents and structures where they were on Hastings Street, just allow this to continue? No, you should have followed the oh. path that was laid out before, which was essentially uh, negotiate with the federal provincial government. Uh, my council passed a $30 million emergency uh, grant. We were able to, to uh, open new shelters, uh, purchase hotels, 
get fo- get folks a place to go, and uh, that's not what happened here. So uh, this is we know this approach fails everywhere it works because people end up dying and that's what's going to happen here well the mayor well we just i just listened closely to what the current mayor had to say with semi sarah he said that everyone has been moved from the sidewalk in the neighborhood has been offered temporary shelter and many people have accepted the temporary shelter so how is that not a better outcome right now if you have well, people see, that have been it, put into temporary shelter hang on no, no one is saying true. No, that's what, not true what do you mean because, it's not uh, true uh, the city manager during the, the initial press release, Paul Mokri, said that, you know, there's over 100 people at least that needed shelter and they had no spaces for these folks. And you can tell if you go around Vancouver neighborhoods, which I do and many people do, is that you're seeing new people sleeping on your park benches or sleeping in your, in your parks. Uh, and that is from Hastings Street. Well, isn't it true, though, as well, that some of the people who are camping down there simply don't want to move into a shelter? There may be reasons for that. Maybe they can't move in with their pets, or they can't move in with a partner, or they can't do drugs in in the shelter, so they don't move. They want to stay... They want to stay in the tent. Let me play a clip here for you from one of the campers down in the downtown east side here who's been asked to move along. This is Jason Rondow, and listen to how he describes the situation, then we'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. They booted us out of here. They told us to pack up or get or lose your stuff kind of thing. And so we packed up, we moved, and when they left, we came back. And the next day, they did the same thing. We packed up, we moved, we came back. And, yeah, it's ongoing kind of thing. Just pack up, move, and then come back. Pack up, move, and come back. It, it sounds like there are people there who don't want to accept the offer of a shelter. Your thoughts? Uh, I think you're guessing there. I mean, if you look well, at the, the accommodations that people are offered, they are so substandard. Uh, and that was part. Look, over my term of four, year, four years, I uh, secured over a billion dollars in social housing from the federal, provincial, and local governments, and we still need more. And that's the unfortunate fact here that we can't say that we are a compassionate city if what we're going to do is use brutality on the folks that are the most vulnerable in our society. And that's what we're doing right now. Uh, and we have to be uh, more creative than that. When, when, when you say that what the city is doing is, is counter to the agreement you had with the province to find housing for people, I, I think it's quite notable that David Eby, the premier, has not criticized this action by the city, to my knowledge. In fact, he says the situation is also unacceptable. Let me play a clip here for you and then get your thoughts. So here is Premier David Eby. Have a listen. We have seen fires. We have seen assaults. A survey of women... Uh, in the downtown east side encampments showed that of 50 women, 50 women had been assaulted in the encampments, 100%. Uh, this is not an acceptable situation. Would you say the provincial government is also failing in its duty here, Kennedy Stewart? I think we're, we're all failing. I mean, I, I really do. I, I do think that, again, these are the most vulnerable people, uh, 40% are Indigenous that are survival, you know, surviving inter- intergenerational and ongoing genocidal practices. And uh, we're throwing them through the wolves. And this is not acceptable. That wasn't the approach I took as mayor. It wasn't perfect. But I did everything I could to secure. I haven't heard uh, any uh, pressure from local or provincial governments right now on the federal government to help with emergency funding here. I haven't heard that mentioned once. It's very significant. This is the one-year anniversary of the tragic fire in the Winters Hotel in Gastown. Left two people dead and dozens of people homeless. That was happened exactly one year ago today. The fire chief had ordered, had placed, put in an order to remove the tents and structures on Hastings Street so we didn't have a repeat of something like that. How can you say that, well, 
they shouldn't be doing what they're doing when there's clearly a fire hazard and the potential for a, a catastrophe. You know, what you're doing by forcing people out into very severe elements without any shelter or uh, proper clothing or medical care is you're killing them. That's what, you know, you try sleeping outside with with no shelter on a park bench, uh, you know, close to zero degree temperatures in the rain for multiple nights, your lifespan is going to be significantly reduced. And that's what this approach is doing. So, you know, out of sight, out of mind seems to be this approach, but that's not going to work. What we all have to do is we have to continue to invest in housing to get people off the street and then with proper services to help them stabilize their lives. That is the only way forward unless we just uh, contend to let people die. Kennedy Stewart, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's talk about the speed demons out there now. The lead-footed drivers speeding on BC roads and highways. Police are on the lookout for these speeders. Check this one out now. Vancouver Police this week reporting they had caught a driver going 124 kilometers an hour on Southwest Marine Drive. The only problem there, it's a 50-kilometer-hour zone. Oh, two and a half times over the speed limit, 74 clicks over the limit. Yeah, that driver got a very expensive lesson, a $483 ticket. Wow. How about the speeders, the motorcycle speeders on Vancouver Island? Oh, this was wild. If you've seen the video of some of these speeding motorcycles, is unbelievable. Sometimes you got these guys on bikes who will speed over, I'm talking over 200 kilometers an hour, even higher. And then they'll upload the videos to social media. Have a listen to Saanich Police Constable here, Marcus Anastadiades, on this. We received at least a dozen uh, 911 calls that these riders were racing, that they were stunting by doing wheelies, that they were weaving in and out of traffic. These guys are like lane splitting, cutting in and out of traffic, doing wheelies down the highway, uploading it all to social media. All right, let's discuss it now with my my guest, Grant Gottkatrue. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He is now a forensic consultant on traffic violations ForensicTrafficPro.com. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Grant. Uh, good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning to you. Thanks a lot. Let's start with this one, the speeder who was caught by the VPD here this week on Southwest Marine Drive. 50-kilometer-hour zone, 124 kilometers, 74 clicks over the speed limit. What do you think of this case? I think it's outrageous. I think, uh, really, at the end of the day, this is a classic example of... Uh, uh, of two problems that we're facing uh, in, in BC. And I've made this comment before. Uh, again, this was a new driver, so how easy is it yeah. to get a driver's license in BC? And the other problem is <clears throat> the, the cars are so much more faster now than they were uh, a generation ago. I mean, yeah. you have you have minivans right now that have the same horsepower as muscle cars used to have in the late 60s. Yeah. You know, so it, 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 it's it's much easier to speed uh, simply because the cars are capable of breaching outrageous speeds now. Right. As you mentioned, this particular driver in this case is a new driver. So the VPD put up a, a picture of the vehicle that they pulled over. Yeah, it's got the N sticker on the back. And man, oh man, you talk about a heavy fine. So we're talking excessive speed, more than 60 kilometers an hour over the limit. 
Four hundred and eighty-three smackers is the fine, and you get pen- you get penalty points on top of that, right? So your insurance goes up. Is that right? Well, you only get three points, but what they have oh. for excessive speed is what's called a high risk driver premium. Yeah. So for three con- three consecutive years, you pay uh, about three hundred bucks more on your insurance, providing you have a car insured in your name. A lot of the uh, the young drivers are driving their parents' cars or whatnot, so it won't affect their. Uh, driving their insurance uh, of the parents but um you know years ago when i was on the job in extreme cases like that we would give an appearance notice and have the person go right to court yeah but unfortunately with the backlogs and whatnot crown council tend to be reluctant to proceed on motor vehicle act charges where a ticket could have been written instead despite the aggravating circumstances We've seen a lot of pretty outrageous speeding cases here recently in the, in the news. What is the, what's the most outrageous one you were ever involved with? You were a traffic police officer for a long time. I'm sure you pulled over your share of speeders. What was the fastest, uh, fastest one you ever pulled over? Well, I had a motorcycle when I was up in uh, West Angle by me at 190. I had him on the radar. And, uh, but it was in the middle of the night. And when I pulled him over, he said, well, I was, there's no one on the road. So I thought it would be safe to go this fast. I said, well, sure, but this is the North Shore. We have a lot of wildlife that wander across the road, the highway, in the middle mm. of the night. And he was mortified by that. Oh, um, man. Like he didn't even consider that part. He was just considering the, 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 the traffic. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've, I've had my fair share of people going over 200 kilometers an hour. It's just... What's um, the what's the typical excuse? I'm sure that when you approach the driver, there's always kind usually kind of an excuse. Like, what sort of stories have you heard? Oh, nothing valid. Just you know, I wanted to see how fast the car could go. Um, what's an interesting stretch where you see massive speeds is uh, up on up in Surrey, between Portman Bridge and about 200. That whole stretch there when they redid it. Yeah because it was, there's a slight grade going eastbound, and once they redid it with all these multiple lanes with HOV and everything, when I was at Ursu, oh, boy, there was easily vehicles going close to 200 kilometers an hour on a nightly basis. I couldn't keep up. 200 kilometers an hour, like, that's an extraordinary speed to me, and especially on a on a motorcycle. Like, when you talk about guys on motorcycles who are going this fast, and some of the most outrageous videos we've seen of speeding motorists here are, are largely, a lot of them are guys on bikes who are doing stunts and wheelies and going over 200 clicks an hour down the highway and then uploading the video to social media. Let me play a clip here for you, Grant. Get your thoughts. This is Ron Kronk. Ron is a former police officer. He's now a, a motorcycle instructor. He's with the Vancouver Island Safety Council. They promote safe motorcycling. And some of these wild videos of bikers going over 200 kilometers an hour, lane splitting, doing wheelies down the highway. Yeah, he says this is embarrassing for most motorcyclists. Let's have a listen. I'll get your thoughts. I saw all the videos, and I tell you, it leaves me angry, disappointed, um, and frustrated. The motorcycle community gets um, tarred with that kind of behavior like that's just a small minority i would suspect from what i understand and it just it frustrates me yeah what do you think of that grant like we have seen a lot of these pretty wild videos here of guys on bikes and we're getting into the motorcycling season here once again your thoughts oh ever ever since i started on my career it was like that of course we don't want to highlight these these this small uh, fringe group of idiots and give them the attention they they so desperately deserve because then they're going to make little packets for themselves saying oh we're we're the fringe major- minority or whatever 
and and they'll they'll wear it like a badge of honor. Eventually, karma catches up with them. Uh, the problem with excessive speed tickets, even the 483, the one if you're doing more than 60 over, um, if you pay the ticket and you don't care about the insurance premiums, then there's no guarantee you're going to lose your license. It will if you're a new driver. You get an excessive speed on your driving record as a new driver, you're going to lose your license. But for those of us that don't have, uh, we have got regular class six license or class five license, then there's there's really unless we get a second one, there's there's really no repercussions for our uh, for getting a driving okay. prohibition. Okay, two sides to the coin here. Now, here's the other side. I mean, we've got these knuckleheads who are going 200 kilometers an hour, 74 clicks over the speed limit like this guy in Southwest Marine Drive this week. Yeah, I think everyone can say that is outrageous and that's unacceptable. What about, though, the speed traps that we see around people who are getting, you know, the, the fishing holes that sometimes police will set up, radar traps? Do you think that a lot of people who get a speeding ticket is maybe a bit unfair like maybe the police are just ticketing people are not necessarily driving dangerously but just going a bit over the speed limit at the bottom of a hill just almost as a a revenue a cash grab well i think we can all agree that some speed limits seem to be artificially low especially four-lane roadways tend to be you get the impression wow we should be going a little bit faster because it's a four-lane roadway versus a two-lane residential street right and you find like for example for me okay mary hill bypass in port Coquitlam, right it's a 60 zone well there's a reason why it's a 60 zone you know it's a commercial area there's a couple of traffic lights there uh, but i wouldn't write you a ticket unless you were going 30 or higher over the limit okay so um but not every officer has that same train of thought right because you want to be catching the high flyers and sometimes the fishing holes are catching the same speeders that are speeding everywhere. You know, it's, but if you're going to work in a fishing hole, you have to make sure that you're giving, you know, a gracious amount over the limit. Okay. That's very, that's very interesting. Unless it's a high crash, unless it's a high crash zone. Yeah. That's very interesting. What you just said that, you, you know, you as a police officer, when you were on the beat that you might not necessarily give a ticket to someone in some circumstances, but another officer might write up a ticket, right? Like, do you find that, do different police officers have different standards about when they will write a ticket in some cases? Absolutely. Discretion, mm. you know, and right. some office, like when I started on the job in 89, uh, my field trainer said, you know, we, we, we give 25 over the limit. And that was just common, 20. Okay. So I think anywhere between 20, 25 over the limit is, is average, except in school zones and playground zones where uh, officers like myself would only give you 12 over. But that's the school zone and the playground zones. It's completely different. What did you buy today? I bought uh, six Bush Light, six Bud Light, and I love them. Tall boys. Tall boys? Uh, how much would you drink a day? Well, what day? A regular day, I don't know, maybe a couple beers. Depends. Weekends, maybe, you know, five beer. Okay. Two drinks a week. What do you think of that? Well, that's just not uh, feasible, not in this country. Okay, that, so let's talk beer now. That was the voice of the famous guy going into the beer store in St. Catharines. That guy, that guy is awesome. Let's talk about beer prices now. Now, beer prices are going 
up. Now, here's the interesting wrinkle on this. I spoke recently to the president of Beer Canada. That's like the major industry association for the big breweries, okay? So we're talking the big guys here, Molson, Labatt. And these guys were absolutely furious that the federal government was set to raise beer taxes and peg it to the inflation rate. They fought tooth and nail against that tax hike. They even got Bob and Doug McKenzie on board with an advertising campaign. It worked, too. Let's go back and listen to that ad campaign. You probably heard this on CKNW here the past few weeks. Have a listen. On April the 1st, Ottawa plans to raise the tax on beer by another 6%. What do Canadians think? We don't like it, eh? Good day. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? Okay, everything else in Canada is frozen, eh? Freeze the beer tax, too. Come on, MPs. You're elected to serve, so serve the beer. And hold the tax, eh? A message from Beer Canada. Stop the hike. Visit hereforbeer.ca. We approve this message, eh? Well, I don't approve of you. Take off. Okay, that ad campaign was very effective. Now, in the recent federal budget, uh, they did not go forward with that planned 6.3% hike in beer taxes. Instead, they brought in a 2% increase in beer taxes. All right, beer prices going up. You've got the tax going up. Uh, You've got input costs for brewers going up. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jordan St. John. Jordan is a beer expert. He's a beer blogger. You can read his work at The Growler. I also recommend his books. One of his books, How to Make Your Own Brewskis, the go-to guide for craft beer enthusiasts. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Jordan, thanks a lot for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. i got to tell you, we didn't choose the title for that last one. <laughs> <laughs> you, okay, I think it's not a bad title, really. <laughs> okay. All right, let's talk about beer prices here now. Now, I thought that was interesting, that, that ad from Bob and Doug McKenzie, and those were the real guys, the real actors there, Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas there. They actually got them to do those ads. Do you think those ads were effective? Because the government sure backed off on that big tax hike, right? Well, I think they're comparatively effective. I mean, you know, Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis, they're national treasures, and uh, I'm just glad that they're getting work. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, a, a decrease from 6.3%, I think it was, to 2% is a right. pretty good news for the brewers across the country. Yeah. And I suppose for beer drinkers, too, right? Like, uh, how much are beer prices going up? Have you seen beer inflation happening? Oh, absolutely. But the thing you have to take into account is that the taxes don't make up a huge amount of that. If it was going to be 6.3%, as it was you know, originally proposed, that would have been about a penny per tall can of beer. Mm. So on a, like a pass it along to the consumer sort of basis, it's not a huge amount of money. The fact that you've got it down to 2% means it's about a third of a cent. So not even really measurable in terms of the currency that we have. Um, the, the problem that you have isn't necessarily the taxation. I mean, that is always a, a driving factor. But you're looking at really significant pressures on the industry in a number of different ways. Right. So let's listen. Let's talk a little bit about some of those. And one of the guys is speaking out on this is Professor Neil Reed, University of Toledo. Uh, he's another beer expert. And here he is talking about the, the input costs for making beer going up. Have a listen. I'll get your thoughts. The cans, the bottles. Uh, raw materials such as the, you know, the malted barley, the hops, basically, you know, everything has kind of went up in price. 
know, I think that's that's been a big, big factor in these price increases that we've, we've seen across the board. Jordan, sounds like everything is going up for everybody, including for brewers. Oh, absolutely. I talk to the brewers in Toronto about this fairly frequently, and I think that this is probably the case for brewers just about everywhere. Um, you know, your, your packaging, your aluminum can, your label that goes on to that aluminum can is probably going to be about a third of the cost of uh, the beer that you're selling out of the tap room or the retail store. And with the price of aluminum going up, you know, as a result of the war in Ukraine and then the result of like logistics internationally in the wake of the pandemic, you really do have some pretty significant issues. It's not as though the prices are going to come down uh, as soon as the cost of mining aluminum comes down. There's all sorts of like knock on uh, levels at which everybody involved wants to make a profit. So, you know, that's what you're dealing with here is a real issue of complexity. If you think about the um, barley, for example, that goes into beer, uh, you know, we have some climate change issues that we're dealing with. So yeah. hotter summers result in less yield in terms of the crops that are being harvested, and that drives up prices as well. I'm sure you've noticed on the uh, cans of beer that you're purchasing that they always say made with the finest ingredients. Well, those cost money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Everything, Everything's going up for everybody. Let's listen to Dan Allard here. Dan is the co-founder of... The Cold Garden Beverage Company, that's a microbrewery in Calgary, talking about his costs going up. And guess what? They've got to pass the costs on to the customers at some point. Let's listen. You got that, you got that clip, Tim? Dan. So now everyone's trying to play catch up. Their costs are not about to go down. And we've really got to start thinking about what do we pass on to the consumer at this point. And that, you're starting to see that now, whether it be regional players microbreweries like us or, or the bigs. Okay, so you got the microbreweries, you got some regional larger breweries, and then you got the big conglomerate breweries. Are prices going up pretty much across the board for everyone, Jordan, would you say? That's exactly right. Yeah, me and the other beer writers here in Toronto, we have a hobby that we partake in, which is where we figure out what the best, cheapest thing in the market is. Mm. Um, because it's, you know, a point of personal interest. In some instances, you know, it's Thursday and you need a beer. Um, yeah. And even the imports, which would typically make up that section of the market, have really significantly increased in price in the last six months. Um, if you're looking at sort of the bottom of the market, in Ontario at least, we had this fascinating thing. We had a price floor up until the current PC government in the province. So the price of beer was going to increase by a set amount every year. And that happened until 2018. As soon as they got rid of that, it went up by $7 over the course of five years. Whoa. Yeah. So um, (laughs) to some extent here, what you're dealing with are large companies that need to display profit to their shareholders on a quarterly basis. And that's, that's fine. That's just part of capitalism. But the other thing that you're dealing with is the fact that you've got all these small companies, so many of them, in fact, that they're all competing against each other, um, you know, Cold Garden there in Calgary is a great example. Up until about 2015, Calgary did not have much in the way of a brew scene. Uh, currently, they have more breweries than they have ever had in the history of Calgary. And, you know, the competition that you're seeing there for people's dollar is actually part of the problem as well. 
Okay, we've got a, a wonderful local brewery scene here in British Columbia. We've got some great craft brews. We've got some very successful small breweries. Tons of them have opened up over the last several years, and it's been a, a wonderful success. What would you say, and you're a craft brewery guy, you're a connoisseur. Jordan, what would you say about the, the state of the industry in our country right now like we've had a lot of success with the craft brewer movement of course the big companies are still doing well and selling their product would you say everything is is going pretty darn well in canada for in the brewery scene or or do you think there what changes would you make if you could make some changes what would you do well uh, you know it's what, one of the things that's really important to take into account here is that from a quality standpoint and from a experiential standpoint if you're a consumer you have more selection than you've ever had in your life i mean yeah. you could try a new beer every day and you would never run out of new beers not even like leaving british columbia so we're in a golden age that being said uh there are breweries that are not going to make it and this is because of inflation uh but mostly due to the fact that you know the costs that go into this they're all real-world costs. Like, if you're a small brewery, you probably have a lease on the building. Commercial real estate, obviously, is going up. So if you have to renegotiate your lease, that might be the thing that kills you. If you've got, you know, a glycol unit that is misfiring and doesn't chill your beer properly, it might slow down your sales enough so that your cash flow slows down enough that that might kill you. I'm afraid that the, the thing is, I like the, the situation pretty much the way it is with people making beer the way they want to the changes that are going to come are just the result of external pressure it was only ever going to take one really good economic downturn in order for this market to correct itself yeah and that's the situation that we find ourselves in now yeah i mean there have been so many of these small craft breweries open up these micro breweries you just got to wonder you know it, it, how sustainable that is and the growth that we've seen in the sector especially in a, in a tough economy right now like a lot of there's a lot of great beer being made in in bc and the whole country here but do you fear that some of these smaller breweries these microbreweries craft brewers they might not make it some of them will have to shut down well we're at something like 1300 breweries across the country wow and that's more than we've ever had yeah. and i can pretty much guarantee you that we could lose 400 yeah. and that the average consumer would never notice and this is the problem the craft breweries, they tend to chase trend, and they tend to look at the artistic aspect of the thing rather than the commercial aspect of the thing. And even more than that, they kind of neglect the communal aspect of beer drinking. So the idea that you want to make something that's going to appeal to a large number of people, you want to get them into a situation like a bar where the thing is affordable – and everybody can have a nice time, drink a wonderful beer, you know, congregate together. That's really the goal of this thing. And that is also something that helps you sell volume. <laughs> right. So the people who are managing to do that are the ones that are going to survive. Yeah. Okay. We're watching it closely. Jordan, thanks for your expertise today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure, Mike. plan will create a lot more of these middle-class homes through provincial zoning rules, faster permitting, less red tape, and more incentives. And our plan will create more rental housing stock by making it easier and legal 
for people to rent out secondary and basement suites across the province. Okay, that's Premier David Eby, of course, talking about his housing plan, and there's a lot in this plan. You heard him go over some of that, some of these zoning changes being considered on a province-wide basis would allow four homes... Four homes to be built on a single-family lot. You heard him talk there about secondary suites in existing homes. Those would be legalized everywhere. Uh, lots more in the home, uh, this plan as well, including an anti-flipping tax. Okay, let's talk about this now. We all know we need more housing. We need more affordable homes, for sure, especially with the population growth that we're seeing. But is this the way to go forward? As we do that, four homes on one lot. We're already seeing some municipal pushback on that part of the plan. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Richard Stewart, the mayor of Coquitlam. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Mayor Stewart, thanks for coming on today. Good to be back, Mike. Okay, let's talk generally about the housing challenge that we face here. What's it like in Coquitlam? Like, How would you characterize the housing situation right now in terms of availability, affordability? How bad is it? Well, it's the same across Lower Mainland. Uh, there aren't enough homes being built uh, to meet the uh, demand, essentially, from uh, immigration, in migration. Last year, this province, or the year before, last couple of years, these, this province has accepted about 100,000 people, and we, as a province, built enough housing for about two-thirds of them, which has made the problem not better, but worse. And we have to obviously get more uh, construction done, more units built, and we're doing everything we can, pulling out all the stops here in Coquitlam. We currently have uh, thousands, tens of thousands of units in stream and uh, thousands of units, including thousands of units of rental housing that are uh, built uh, essentially through our incentive program. So we're, we're, we're stepping up as we need to, and we, we absolutely support every community stepping up and doing what it can in order to increase housing supply. Okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the features in this provincial plan that's been laid out. Like You heard him mention in that clip we played, the Premier talked about secondary suites, so like a basement suite, an in-law suite. These would be legalized throughout the province. What is the legal status of a secondary suite in Coquitlam? Are they allowed? They're absolutely allowed. We allow them okay. in all units. Um, so that that... And I suspect there's lots of communities where that is the case, either yeah. by uh, just by uh, regulation allowing them or by just ignoring them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've heard that that's uh, the case in some places. What about parking? Like, if you put in a secondary suite in a home in Coquitlam, are you required to provide a parking spot? Yes, we're required to provide an, uh, a on the lot on property on site parking spot for your tenant. Um, our challenge there, of course, is the province doesn't allow us the teeth or the regulatory authority to require that that space be available to the tenancy. So quite often the owner's boat is there, but you know there's, mm. we don't have the power to make it be used for the tenant, only to require there to be one. Okay, that's very interesting. Let's talk now about the the density issue here. Uh, this is a big one for a lot of people. Four homes on one single-family lot. The Premier talking about this will be a, a province-wide policy. There's still a lot of unanswered questions here about how this is going to work. I know you have some concerns. Let's listen to what he has to say here, then I'll get your thoughts. So here's Premier David Eby on how these zoning changes are going to work. Have a listen. The rezoning, which will be a provincial law, it will establish base standards across the province. Uh, it will be a requirement, a province-wide standard, uh, to make sure that it works as intended. Uh, we're going to need to engage with municipalities. 
Okay. So he says he's going to engage with municipalities. Let's talk about your thoughts on this. So four homes on one lot. Is that a good idea? Well, we do it now in some uh, properties. We have lots in Coquitlam ranging from uh, 70 or 80 feet wide to 33 feet wide. And obviously, the ability for such a neighborhood to accept four homes on a lot, some of them have lanes, some of them don't. So in neighborhoods with larger lots and lanes, it's actually quite easy to put three or four detached even homes on the lot. Um, and we do it quite successfully in a bunch of areas of Coquitlam where we've designated that. There's other areas where it wouldn't work. And so we haven't included those areas. This That's the challenge is the devil's in the details. And it's a big devil. Like if you don't accommodate, for example, the cars, the first house goes in and those tenants park on the street. And then the next house goes in and there's no parking left on the street. And then City Hall gets uh, uh, overwhelmed with complaints about parking. Um, it, it really is. And it's something that every city councillor learns when they get elected. The, the two main issues you're going to deal with are parking and dog poo. And uh, <laughs> it's just a, a reality. We, we deal with lots of other stuff, but those are the two thorns in everybody's side. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's, what about that issue now of, Which like, one? Do, do, well, let's talk about, let's, the dog poo we can do on another show, I think, but let's let's talk about the parking the parking uh, issue because I've heard a lot of people saying, "Well, wait a sec here now. If you start allowing four homes in one lot, I mean, you're asking for Carmageddon. You're asking for traffic gridlock. What about all the other infrastructure you need? Schools, roads, sewers. Do you have concerns in that area that the province could be stepping into jurisdiction that right now is under the authority of municipalities?" maybe forging ahead here without realizing, you know, taking into consideration some of these challenges. Absolutely. So we've got a, a neighborhood up on Westwood Plateau that was designed a, a, for exactly 4,525 homes. That's the, it was actually in the provincial um, contract when the land was purchased from the province. So all of the pipes are set up for that. That's how much, you know, how many toilets can flush is 4,525 homes. We actually have more than that now because secondary suites uh, are in many of the homes. If you went into neighborhoods and said, okay, from now on, we're going to allow more. Uh, we don't have, we, none of the arterials in that neighborhood are four lane. They're all two lane because they were designed for a, a less dense neighborhood. Uh, when we're doing new neighborhoods, that's absolutely different. We can accommodate all kinds of density, but uh, but the infrastructure has to match in order to allow that you called it Carmageddon. We don't want that. We want to have the bus routes all scheduled so that um, there's enough uh, transit in neighborhoods where we're going to add density so that we're not adding as many cars. Uh, that's Most of our density is being added around SkyTrain stations here in Coquitlam because we don't want the cars on the road as much. We want to give people options, but if you put four houses on a lot a kilometer and a half from the nearest bus route, those folks yeah. are not, not taking public transit. Okay, well, I've talked to David Eby on this precise point, and he told me that, well, we can't start overthinking this kind of thing. We're in a housing crisis. People need a place to live. They're desperate. We can't start worrying and fretting and wringing our hands about where people are going to park. Now, let's have a listen to him here. Now, here he is speaking on the launch of this housing plan, and you'll hear him describe how he sees the challenge that we face right now. Let's listen. Finding a decent place where you can actually afford to live uh, is a challenge for too many British Columbians. In fact, it has become a crisis. 
Okay, a crisis, he calls it. That's the situation we have. But do you make the crisis worse if, if they plow ahead here over, over some of the concerns you're articulating there? You, you, you possibly can. So we would urge the province to really step up on infrastructure. Let's build more SkyTrain stations, for example. If you had rapid transit to more communities, the density that we can put around a rapid transit station, we can put 10,000 people around a rapid transit station quite easily. And it can be built relatively quickly and the infrastructure can be in place for that population. Putting 10,000 uh, families out in in existing neighborhoods requires a whole lot of extra work. So it's not, mm. let's not overthink this. Let's make sure we're thinking about which one's more efficient. We, it's more sustainable to try to get higher density housing options right near rapid transit than it is to park people all around the city and then uh, have more cars on the road, more congestion, and therefore have yeah. us build wider roads and expand all kinds of other infrastructure in order to accommodate it when the infrastructure could be put in place relatively easily in a high-density neighborhood. Okay, you've talked about another way of going forward here with this idea of gentle density. Could you tell me what that is? What is gentle density? Well, essentially it's what we've done in areas um, so, for example, a secondary suite throughout the community, we have large areas of Coquitlam where we're allowing coach houses, uh, carriage homes on top of the garage in the back lane, for example. The two, three, or four units per lot, the townhouse and road densities sorts of uh, solutions, particularly in places where the infrastructure is available to to accommodate it. So it's gentle. If we put those in places where there is no infrastructure, it makes an enormous impact. Um, We also want to contemplate, are the schools available? Because if the schools in the neighborhood are absolutely full and the housing that we're going to be building is going to be attracting uh, new families to neighborhoods, we've waited a decade or longer. Uh, The current high school, we've waited 15 years for it to start construction. So the people it was built for now have children of their own. And uh, ultimately, if we can't speed up a little bit on the on the infrastructure and make sure we're using infrastructure as efficiently as possible, we're going to be throwing a lot of money at this problem that we didn't need to solve, mm. and we're going to we're not going to be as efficient or as sustainable. So I I want us to build the housing right now, but let's yeah. put it in places where uh, it can be it can be supported by the existing infrastructure, the parks, the facilities. Okay, we're following it closely, to say the least. Thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It's the biggest issue facing us, so thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.